Welcome to Shekinah International Podcast. Our ministry reflects the five-fold ministry model Apostle Paul mentions in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Our podcast features leaders from multiple churches who are passionate about equipping Christians just like you to walk in purity and power, fulfilling your God-given purpose. God wants to do great exploits through you, so enjoy today's podcast. Hey, thank you, Laura. I got my Amazon Accident by glasses. You like these? Aren't those fun? Yeah, I thought they were about four times smaller, and I got them in the mail, and this is what we got, folks. This is what we got. So that's all right, because I can see now. Yeah, can we just thank God for the worship team one more time? Brent and Cami, I love you guys so much. Isn't it fun to come to gather together as the church and just be real, right? People having conversations. It's not an in-the-box performance. I just absolutely love the authenticity in the room. It's so, so refreshing. I'm going to put my little passcode in here. The Lord's got me working from two different versions today. Turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, I need you. You tell him back, say, you know what? You need me too. <laughs> Isn't that good? All right, let me open this up. and See if I can remember what my password is. I, uh, I always start off when I'm preparing for these, asking the Lord, Father, what do you want to say to your kids? Come on. You know that you're a child of God. Amen. Where's the clicker, Matt? Are you clicking or am I clicking today? Oh, there it is. It's on the other side. All right, let's move it down. There we go. And um, I titled this Time to Dream. Anybody ready to dream? Right? Sometimes I, being apostolic in nature, I like to plow forward, right? I like to be moving. I like to be shifting. I like to be pioneering. So in those times when I have to be patient and have to wait, my spirit on the inside says, Daddy, 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 when do we get to dream again? So I was so excited this morning to hear the Lord say, it's time to dream, okay? If you look at the um, situation in our nation and some of the things going on maybe in your life, personally, it's obvious that we need some dreamers to wake up again. God's bringing the Josephs that have been thrown into the pit and have been through the process of going from the pit to the prison and have persevered through that process of purification. He's preparing them to speak to the brethren. Oftentimes to the very ones that put them in the pit, but they've persevered in love, they persevered in patience, they persevered unto purity. And it's time to dream, to hear the dream, to receive the dream, to share the dream in the right time, in the right place, for the sake of God providing for mankind to save a nation. Come on, somebody. You can't make that up. It's time to dream again, America. It's time to dream again, nations of the world. It's time to dream, body of Christ. So specifically, what the Lord said to me this morning was, love me. And I was like, what? Okay. Like, I can't love you if you don't love me. Like, you know the scriptures. You know theology. You know, right, um, that the scripture says we can love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, we can only love him and love others to the measure that we allow God to love us because he is love, right? It comes to us first from the finished work of Christ. 
and then through us to others to the measure which we've received it ourselves of him, right? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, right? We love him because he what? First loved us, amen? So I'm like, love me. Okay, Lord, I get that. What's, what's the... I felt like it was a partial sentence, I guess. So I struggled a little bit, and I'm kind of praying in the spirit like I do, wiping the, my eyes off and talking to him. And when I got the title, Time to Dream, he completed the sentence, and he said, love me, and you will accomplish the dream. Love me, and you will accomplish the dream. And then he took me to... The Passion Translation of Psalm 126, and I'm going to ask you to bear with me because I'm going to read through the entire thing. And I love the Passion Translation. I love the new versions that are coming out because I've been reading the word so long that sometimes I need it to be spoken in a fresh translation. So I'm not expecting or knowing ahead of time the phrasing that the Lord's going to use, and it hits me a little bit different. Anybody can relate to that? So I'm going to read it from the Passion Translation. If you've got another version, that's okay. This is just going to expound on the Greek or the Hebrew here, actually, because it's Chaldean, Old Testament, right? So verse 1 says, It was like a dream come true. When you freed us from our bondage and brought us back to Zion, we laughed and we laughed and overflowed with gladness. We were left shouting for joy and singing your praise. All the nations saw it and joined in, saying, the Lord has done great miracles for them. Yes, he did mighty miracles, and we are overjoyed. Now, Lord, do it again. Restore us to our former glory. You may streams of your refreshing flow over us until our dry hearts are drenched again. And then it goes on to say, those who sow in tears as seeds will reap a harvest with joyful shouts of glee. They may weep as they go out carrying their seed to sow, but they will return with joyful laughter, and shouting with gladness as they bring back the armloads of blessings and harvest overflowing. Come on. That's a beautiful promise. That's a beautiful promise. And I give you the full context of that so you can kind of see where we're going, where we're going to head, okay? So I love that first verse that says, it was like a dream come true. Do you remember when you first got saved and how full of joy you were and how excited you were that all your sins were forgiven and all your friends are like, what is wrong with you? Why are you so happy all of a sudden? What happened? You're like, let me tell you about Jesus. And you couldn't help but tell them about Jesus because you were so happy, you were so excited, you were so relieved. All the burdens, all that weight you bore was lifted off, and you had this lightness about you. Amen? Yeah, the best feeling in the world. It says when he delivered us from bondage, and in that moment when we were first delivered from bondage, it was like a, it was like a dream. So this whole psalm, when, when you read the first half of the psalm, okay, it talks, it's really the heart cry of a person. 
He starts off, it was a dream come true when you freed us from bondage. He's reminiscing about how good it felt when he first got saved, David is. Okay. All the nations saw it and joined in. He's remembering the testimony of the people around him, and they saw it too. They saw it too. They joined in. They celebrated with me. It was exciting. He's remembering the miracles that God did for him. And he's overjoyed. And then he says, and this gives us a little bit of a clue of something that's happening. He goes from this place or this season where he remembers all that joy that he had into, into this cry of his heart where he says, now, Lord, do it again. That tells us a couple things. It tells us something was going on in David's life where that moment of celebration and jubilation and excitement and joy, something had shifted. There were circumstances happening where something in his life had shifted and he was asking the Lord, Lord, do it again. Bring me back to that moment, to that feeling, to that excitement, to that emotion, to that connection with you. It goes on and it says, restore us to our former glory. May streams of your refreshing flow over us. And he was in a season where he's saying, okay, Lord, I, need, I don't just need you just to refresh me and give me a quick touch. It was a season and a circumstance where he said, I need streams of your refreshing to flow over me, wash over me again and again and again and again. I need you, Abba. I can't, a little dab isn't going to do me. I need to be able to drink deep and know that you are good and that you are God and to laugh with you. I need you to shift my perspective and help me see things the way you see them and show me how you're going to bring me through this one. Refreshing in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, which is my absolute favorite dictionary out there if you haven't. Um, ever use that as a study tool, it's fantastic because I have a great respect for Webster. He lists more scriptures in that dictionary than any other dictionary I've ever seen in my life. He goes on and on with the biblical meaning in the biblical text, the biblical meaning in the biblical text of the word. And this is what he says about what it means, what refreshing means. And I just want you to drink this in because this is what the Lord wants to do for our nation and the city. This is what the Lord wants to do for you personally. He wants to cool. Anybody need to keep their cool sometimes? Hey, let's keep it real. Okay? It means to allay the heat. We know the analogy about the gold being boiled and purified, and you got to heat it up. But if you heat it too much, it ruins the batch. If you don't heat it up enough, you can't get that dross to float to the top so you can wipe it off. But there's seasons where you got to take the heat away. you got to lay the heat, pull it back so you can sweep the dross off so you don't overheat that gold. So it continues in the process of purification but doesn't ruin the batch. Amen? It's the dew coming after a heat. I don't know if you know this, but when they make swords, they actually heat the sword up in the fire and they hammer the sword over and over and over again while they're forging it. And they hammer it and hammer it. And then they actually dip it in oil. I was like, I did not know that until I watched that new forging show on television. And I was so excited. All I could think about is, yeah, yes, Lord, please stop hammering me and dip me in the oil. 
<laughs> you know? You've been through those seasons like we were prophesying about earlier. I think it was you, the, the angel with the fiery red hammer, and you're just laying there, and he's knocking it out of you, right? And you're like, yes, Lord, ouch. Yes, Lord, ooh. Yes, Lord, hey. <laughs> Whatever you say, that one hurt, Lord. I wasn't expecting you to be bent that direction. But I want you more than I want what I want, so I surrender all. Just like Holly was saying earlier, I surrender all. And it's like the dew coming after that heat. You're real hot. He's forging you, and he dips you in that oil, and you're like, shh. Right? It makes that singeing sound, and you're like, thank you, Jesus. It finally paused. I finally have a reprieve. He wants to refresh you. It means to give you new strength. Now, without the sword going into the oil like that, it actually doesn't become strong. It has to cool off to become strong and formidable and a solid, good weapon. So the cooling process is important. If it just stays fiery hot, fiery hot, fiery hot, and it never calms down and cools off, it's just going to bend every time it hits something. It's not going to be real helpful. It'll break. So there's a time to be hot and on fire and vata, 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 we say, okay? Vata, vata in the spirit, us prophetic people say. You know, you're going after it, right? And then there's a time when you walk into a meeting. This is my friend Paul, by the way. Everybody say hi, Paul. There's a time when you walk into a precinct delegate meeting and everybody else is vata, vata, and God goes, I just need you to be cool, calm, and collected. I want you to say exactly what I tell you to say, and that's it. And it slices and divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and the attitudes of the heart. And it reveals what's going on in the room. And everybody behind you is patting you on the back going, man, that's exactly what we needed, right? To refresh means to invigorate, to relieve a fatigue. Anybody say amen? Yes. You ever have those days where you're waking up and you're going, <laughs> nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Dear Jesus, help me get up out of bed. Nobody knows my sorrows. And you lay there and you have the pity party and the Holy Spirit says, girl, get up. Son, get out of bed. And you're going, but Lord. All right? And you roll out of bed and you get up and... You do one of the Psalms where David complains for five verses and then finally remembers who God is and says, oh, yeah, life's okay. Let's go do this again. <laughs> Amen. So he wants to invigorate you. He wants to relieve you of fatigue. He wants to revive you. And I love this definition of refreshing. He wants to feed you and allow you to rest. That's really, really important because sometimes we give and 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 we pour ourselves out until we're completely dry and empty and we're going, what's wrong, Lord? Why is the season changed? Honey, the season ain't changed. You need to sit down. You need to eat a little food. Have a little meat of the word. And sometimes you just need to rest. God rested. Six days he worked, it says, and then he rested. It'd be real arrogant of us to, to know that God rested and think we don't need to rest too. Now, I'm just saying I've done it. But I got to remind myself, you know what, Steph? God rested. I need to rest. This is a physical body with physical limitations. And God is divine and doesn't even have that problem. And he still took time to be still. 
So even just in our spirit, man, we need to take a day, a time to feed ourselves spiritually, physically, and to just be still. Isn't that beautiful? It means to improve by new touches, anything that has been impaired. Okay? So sometimes you're going through life, you're going through ministry, you're trying to accomplish a destiny or a purpose or implement a strategy that God has given you, and it seems like you're hitting a wall. It seems like you turn this way and it's like, er, closed door. You go this way, er, closed door. You go this way, er, closed door. And you're like, Jesus, what is going on? I know you're talking to me. But it takes one conversation with Holy Spirit. He walks up and he touches something. All of a sudden, the door is swung wide open. You're going, whoa, 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 slow down. I didn't realize it was going to happen this fast. Like, for instance, the building. God just gave us $153,000. Come on, somebody, for free. You can't make that stuff up. We've been plowing five years. Lord, what is going on? We got this mighty, wild, and wily remnant shifting atmospheres, praying over nations. The podcast is in 24 nations, and I look around and go, this is hilarious. I love it. Faithful remnant. And then all of a sudden, he comes over, and we're turning this way, we're turning this way, we're turning this way. It's like boom, 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 shut doors. He touches something, and it's time. And so often in those seasons, it's because he's doing a work in us. He's preparing us for the thing that he's called us to do. To refresh means to revive what is drooping. Everybody over 40 say amen. (laughs) Put your hands out there and receive that. I receive your refreshing of all my drooping parts, Lord, in Jesus' name. (laughs) God has a sense of humor. It's okay to laugh. Amen. Amen. He says our youth shall be renewed like the eagle. I received that literally and figuratively. Amen. 46 years old, still going strong. That's right. Receive it. Okay. Let me scroll down here. I want to make sure I catch all this. He goes on in the next component, and he says, until... Our hearts are drenched again. So in other words, I don't just want a little bit. I don't just want to get enough to where I'm okay to keep moving forward. I want to be completely saturated with your refreshing. I want to be so in tune with you that just like Jesus prayed, you are in him and he is in me and I am in you. And when Holy Spirit speaks, I move and I shift or I stop or I go or I pray or I pay, <laughs> right? Some of you got to, he's telling you to do something, right? You ever had God tell you to do something crazy? Pay for the ladies' groceries in front of you. What? That can't be the Holy Spirit. Yes. Yeah. He'll tell you to do stuff like that. You don't know what the person's going through, right? But Holy Spirit knows everything. For all we know, they could have just prayed a prayer, God, if you're real, you know I don't have enough money for this, that, or the other thing this week. If you take care of this, I'll know that you're real. That's right. Amen. Drenched means to wet thoroughly, to soak, to fill all the way up, or to cover something with water or liquid. Come on, somebody. It means to flood or to drench the earth. I don't know why I'm seeing in my mind's eye right now a picture of a bog. Anybody been to Ireland besides me? Okay, when you go over to Ireland, they have what's called bogs. 
And it's real creepy, honestly. People disappear in the bogs if you're not careful. You got to have a stick with you because if there's a hole in the grass, you're going down into a swamp and you're basically covered by swamp grass. And it's grass, it's like a grass that grows over water. So when you walk on it, it makes waves like this. And you got to be real careful where you're walking and make sure it's thick enough for you to be walking on it. It's drenched. There's always enough to keep that grass green. It's gorgeous over there. Absolutely gorgeous. So he says, do it again. I need streams of refreshing. Do streams of refreshing over us until what? Until my heart is drenched. It's so well watered that it can pull up in any moment from the waters beneath those deep places of the waters and just obey. Surrender. Say exactly what you tell us to say. Like that. So we're going to talk a little bit about the call. I love this guy's face. I was laughing so hard when I saw this. After I read that psalm, he brought me to Nehemiah. Some of you know that I've been working with uh, Coggle Network for, gosh, it's been going on 12 years now. Okay, that's Christians of Greater Lansing Network. We're united to transform the city with Christ. And... Um, that whole story of Nehemiah is really about rebuilding the wall, returning to Jerusalem and rebuilding the walls of the city. And after we talked about Psalm 126 and how he starts out thinking about coming out of bondage and the jubilee and the excitements that there, sometimes when you get into those places where God has you rebuilding your portion of the wall, life happens. In Nehemiah at this time, and chapter 2 is serving under King Artaxerxes. He's the wine taster. Somebody say amen. <laughs> okay, now wine, for those of you that don't know, represents Holy Spirit, so don't get any funny ideas. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> Matt's laughing. Right, so he's tasting the wine. He's drinking of the Holy Spirit, right? He's passing it on to the king. He's drinking of the Holy Spirit, passing it on to the king, and you ever have one of those days where you show up to work and kind of like this guy, you're just dry. You can't hide it. You're so dry. You're trying to put on the pretty face, but you can't hide it because, you know, people can see past the teeth into the eyes and the soul and what's really going on. You're like, how are you? Fine, fine. How are you today? It's good to see you, right? And you know that they know, but you don't want to talk about what you know that they know because you're just trying to keep it together. And I love this guy's face. He's just like, oh, here we go again. So Nehemiah is going through that, right? He's, he's working with King Xerxes, and it says this. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, Nehemiah says, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? In other words, I know nothing's wrong with this man. He's going to the king of Xerxes sitting on the throne thinking he's not sick. His family's not sick. He's making good money because I'm paying him. I know nothing's wrong with him. What's going on? There must be something going on in his heart. So, so what's going on, Nehemiah? And I love this. I love this. Nehemiah has a moment the next verse says, I was very much afraid. <laughs> if you're ever in the presence of the king, 
and you're having a moment like this guy, and you're like, right? You're dry, and you're worn out, and you're tired, and you're like, I know what I need to say. I know how I'm supposed to pray. I know how to bring the high praise. Hey. But you're really not ready to have the conversation that you need to have with the king about what's going on. Sometimes in our flesh, we can feel very afraid, like, oh, I know if I tell him what's going on, I'm going to have to go there. It's going to require work. I'm going to have to do something about what's going on in here, right? Anybody been there besides me? Are we all truth-telling Christians? Okay, raise your hand because I know we've all been there. (laughs) Amen. We've all been there, right? I love that Nehemiah tells on himself. He said, I was very afraid. I absolutely love it. Changes like I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? And its gates have been destroyed by fire. And there's some of you that are working in positions and in spheres and in places where you're saying to the Lord, why should I not look so sad when my nation lies in ruins? And its gates are burned and have been destroyed by fire. And you're struggling looking at the situation going on and knowing that you have a call to help rebuild some things, but maybe you're not sure where or what your part is. And I love this because it goes on in verse 2, 4, and it says that Nehemiah prayed before answering the king. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what do you want? So there was an opportunity of favor there, and he had an opportunity to ask for something, and Nehemiah was wise enough to stop and to pray. Whoa, I'm in the presence of someone who could actually help me accomplish the very thing that's in my heart to do. I want to make sure that I hear from the Lord on what I'm asking for. There's those moments sometimes when we're having conversations with the Lord and, and he's offering us that same question, what is it that you want? And the wise ones in the Bible always said, Lord, you know. Lord, you know. Right? Like, what do I want? I don't know. You know me. You know how you created me. What should I ask you for? And if we know that God is good and God is love, and he is, because the scripture says that he is, it's so good to stop and to pray and even ask him in those moments when he's telling us, what do you want to say, Lord, I think I want this, but I actually want what you want. Will you tell me what would be best to want in this moment? Because I'm not sure I'm wanting what is good or what is best, or what is you, or what will benefit your kingdom in this moment? What should I want? After Nehemiah prayed, it goes on and it says, Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. Holy Spirit will do that. When we talk to the Lord and when we ask the Lord, what is it that I should want? What is it that is best? What is it that I should be doing? He'll show us. Amen? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king. And if this servant has found favor in your sight, 
Let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. Send me out. Send me to rebuild. Help me be a part of the solution. Give me the grace that I need to do this thing that will be a solution to the burden that's on my heart, that's weighing on me. And I love this. It says, then the king with the queen sitting beside him says, how long will your journey take? And when will you be back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I love that he prayed before answering. In the, when he asked the king for these things, he continued to ask in humility. But I, this is a beautiful picture of how the Lord provides for us when we ask him for something or when he asks something of us. And we're humble enough to say, Father, what is it that I should ask for like Nehemiah did? And we position ourselves before him to receive that answer. Verse 7 says that Nehemiah said, I also said to him, so he returned with a continued conversation of boldness and said, I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. In other words, he sent Nehemiah with authority and with favor. I'm giving you the authority to pass through these countries, these places, these spheres, these atmospheres that I own, that belong to me. And he goes on again and, okay, this is good. I received that. Okay, I'm going to try this one more time. Let me also ask for this. And I don't know about y'all, but I had a Catholic background, so we didn't like to bother God. Okay, that's just what we did. I don't want to bother God with this. So we lived like heathens because we never asked him for nothing. And then we'd just go tell our priest how sorry we were on Sunday and go back and do it all over again because we didn't know that we could ask. I didn't know. We were Irish Catholic. I mean, we, we were fun. Well, we were wild. And we, we didn't know we could ask for things. And when I learned I could ask, I could so relate to Nehemiah. It's like when the Lord says yes to one thing, your, your boldness and your um, excitement and your hopefulness that he'll grant the next thing increases. And it's like, okay, he said yes to that. Wow. As we get to know him, I'm going to go back now and ask him for one more thing because he provided this, and I know I can't get through these countries without his help. And he gave me the letters of authority and favor. So I'm going to go back. I'm going to ask for this other thing because I know in and of myself I don't have the provision that I need. And he says, um, and King, may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the citadel, of the temple, for the city wall and for the residents that I'll occupy. In other words, could you also give me a little bit of money? You own the cattle on a thousand hills, right? And sometimes we hear people preach about prosperity gospel and how it's not about the money. But let me tell you something. You cannot accomplish a big dream without having some money. God is not afraid to give you some cash. If your daughter or your son comes to you, and ask you for something that they really need that is a godly thing, that is a good thing, that is a thing that's going to help them accomplish the destiny that you know is on their life, are you not going to do everything in your power to help partner with them to ensure that they have everything they need? Yes, I am. 
a good father, a godly father, a father and mother that leave an inheritance are going to say yes and amen. We'll partner with you. Now, you notice he didn't give all the brick and mortar, but he gave the timbers for the gates. Just a little side note. What are we called? Oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. He gave the timber for the gates. In other words, the Lord prepared the gatekeepers for the city prior to Nehemiah going out and asking them to unify and to stand there watch and to say that which is of the Lord may come through unto redemption, restoration, repair, but that which is not in Jesus' name must come under his feet. We won't allow it in this city. It's a picture of operating in our kingdom authority and standing as the oaks of righteousness at that gate place where we've been appointed in unity with the other oaks of righteousness, if you will, and standing and watching, saying, like Donna said, what he tells us to say and doing what he tells us to do and praying what he tells us to pray. Loving where he tells us to love. Giving where he tells us to give. Come on, somebody. Hmm. That's so good. It's not an accident. It says here, the city wall for the residents I will occupy. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are called to occupy. You are called to occupy. We gather on Sundays, but Monday through Friday, because we should be resting one day. Amen. Okay, whether that's Sunday or Saturday for you, that's between you and the Lord. But Monday through Friday is where we spend 80% of our time. And as we gather, we get filled, we get refreshed, we get drenched, and then we're sent in power to go and take those places so that everywhere the sole of our foot treads, he'll give us success. And we'll be bringing his kingdom, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Kingdom order. We can walk into a boardroom where it's a hot mess and antichrist spirits are pervading and railing against whatever. And we should be able to, in the right time, as Holy Spirit leads, stand up and say something to bring back the things into kingdom order. And oftentimes there will be others in the room. When a person hears the truth, they know the truth, their spirit says, yes, that's it. And they'll be like, good job. We needed that. They don't even know why they needed it, but they love truth. But if we don't stand up and stand in our authority and, and be that gatekeeper there, sometimes they'll get a partial truth and they'll fall for that partial truth because no one's standing up and saying the whole truth. Amen? So he sent him with authority and favor. He sent him with provision through the letters of Asaph so that he could occupy, set those gates in place. And then he sent him with protection. Nehemiah goes on and says, and because of the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So he's given glory to God. Amen. Father, we thank you that everything we have that is good is of you, and we do give you glory. Favor comes from you. Authority comes from you. Provision comes from you. Protection comes from you. And by the finished work of your son. He says, so he went to the governors and the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. And it says, and then the king also sent an army of officers and cavalry with me. Come on, somebody. Cavalry's the ones up on the horses. They're not slow. They're sitting up high so they can see. We got some angels watching over us. It says that the angels are ministering, spirits sent for us, the saints. It says they hasten to perform the word of God. 
So the moment that something released from his mouth or released from our mouth that is of his spirit, those angels, that's what they're created for. Go and perform it. Go and perform it. Go and perform it. Bring it to pass. Bring it to pass. Bring it to pass. And sometimes, you know, when we're in the midst of things, I forget. I forget. All I got to do is say it, and it's accomplished. Think about Genesis. We talk about this a lot here. In Genesis, it says, the Lord said, let there be light. Then what does it say next? And there was. We were talking about throne room the other day and how that word of the Lord comes in seed form first. You say the thing. It's already accomplished. And all the power, all the life, all the future fruit, all the future trees are in the very acorn that you plant in the ground or in the very seed or declaration that you release from your mouth. There's seed, then there's time, and then there's harvest. Amen. And we do real good in the seed part because that's kind of like when we're that fiery forging sword and we're on fire and we're hammering and we're hammering and we're hammering. It's exciting. We can see that something's shifting. Then we get to that time part after we've been dipped in the oil and we're like, hello. Lord, are we still doing something here? <laughs> and there's growing happening that's small and it's incremental and it's little and we're not sure really. We're like, daddy, you know. Today, Junior, where are we at with this? <laughs> I've been decreeing this for three years, for four years. Where are we at? Ten years we've been doing Kago. We went from 20, I think we started with 35. 35 pastors. We went all the way up to 2,500 leaders, came back down to 900, and it just goes like this as people come into the city and get equipped and catch a vision for unity and transforming cities with Christ, and then they get sent out. So there's this constant cycle of shifting in and out of the city. And when I was young in the organization, when I was, we were first building that, and Father was calling me, much like Nehemiah, I used to think, oh, what did we do wrong? These people left. Uh, no, they've been sent. We bless them in Jesus' name. Let them go. It's multiplication. When God spoke that word, let there be light in Genesis, did you know that the universe is still multiplying out today, literally? It's still expanding. It's still performing. God is eternal. So those words and those things that he's told us to say and to speak, if we agree with his written word, it is eternal. And it will continue to shift and continue to grow and continue to multiply. We may or may not see the fullness of it in our generation. I'd like to live to be 800 and something like Methuselah, but I'm not sure that's in the cards for me at this point. <laughs> right? Not sure that's in the cards for me. God knows. Who knows? What's it going to look like when we start to walk in the fullness of the kingdom of God? Will our lifespans shift? You know, will we get back to where we're living to be 120 and 200 or that's normal? I don't know. I'm willing to believe for that. Not because I love it here on earth, don't get me wrong, but because I want to give him as much honor and glory as is humanly possible before I leave this earth because I was a hot mess before the Lord found me. I was a hot mess. And he loved me, and he saved me, and he healed me. And I am so thankful. I think about this a lot. We only have one life to give him. I only get one. So if he wants to extend my years like Hezekiah, 
or like David, or like Methuselah. Sir, yes, sir. What's going to bring you glory? What's going to bring you honor? What do you want to build? What do you want to pioneer? So the story goes on. If you're familiar with the story of Nehemiah, when you get a vision, when you hear the call, and the Lord releases you, and then the provision and the authority and the favor comes. It's really exciting in the beginning. You're like, God is for me. Who can be against me, right? And you kind of launch off, and everybody celebrates you, and they're clapping. And you're like, why? You know, you're doing the queen's or king's wave. It's like, God is good. This is going to be amazing. This is going to be so good. And then you hit the ground where you're called to build, and opposition begins because the Lord says, everywhere there's opportunity, there is opposition. Remember, Paul talks about that. And sometimes the enemy will come and say, if you're getting opposed, you must be doing something wrong. But it's not true. Opposition is actually a sign that you're moving in the wrong direction. And if you don't have any opposition, you're probably going downstream. It says he stepped out. Nehemiah 2.10, when Sanballat, the Horite, and Tobiah the Amorite, the official, heard about this. Heard about what? Heard about what Nehemiah was doing. They were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And there are people out there who don't want us to promote the health of the people. Why? Because it lines their pockets. Their poverty feeds their kids. <laughs> Their position in this city or in this nation or this mess and this chaos meets their agenda and somehow advances their personal ambitions. Isn't that interesting? So who were these ones that came against Nehemiah? Who were they? Did a little research. Sambalat was a, very likely a Moabite. You remember the Moabites? Remember Moses buried him on bite? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He governed Samaria and had married into the high priest's family. You can find that in Nehemiah 13, 18. Excuse me, 28, if you want to check that out. Okay. Tobiah was an Ammonite. You remember the story of the Ammonites? From the lineage of Ben-Am, or Em, who was the son of Abraham's nephew, Lot. Do you remember what happened between Lot and Abraham? Okay. So Lot and, there was a history of division there between those two, right? You remember that? And, and Abraham said, no, you take the nice fertile valley and I'll go this way. I'll trust the Lord again and go to the dry, arid place and pioneer and build. You can have the lush, everything is beautiful area. And since you're arguing with me about this, right? And then we all know the story and what happened. Sodom and Gomorrah turned into literally salt because of the depravity and the feeding of the flesh and the different things that happened there, right? That's in Nehemiah 6, 17 and 13, 4 through 5. And then there it says Geshem, an Arab, okay, was an Arab chief from a neighboring enemy of Jerusalem, and he came against him as well. I want to read this out of 6, Nehemiah 6. So he... 
gets this call, he gets the provision, he gets the protection, he gets the favor, the letters of authority, and he's all excited, and he goes out with all this pomp and celebration and circumstance, and then he's confronted with these men. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, the rest and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat, Geshem, and Geshem sent me this message. Come to meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. That's a little clue. He was meeting in the plain of Ono. You think God might have been trying to talk to Nehemiah? Oh, no, 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 Nehemiah. Historically speaking, there's evidence that Sanballat and Tobiah had Jewish roots and backgrounds, but preferred the political status quo in which the Jewish identity was diluted. You see any of that going on in our nation today? Some people are of political persuasions that are diluting their Christianity to be accepted in, in one political persuasion or another. And it's happening on both sides of the fence. Let me be real clear. We saw it in our meeting the other day. Both sides of the fence. So you got these two internal people who are Jewish or who are Christians moving against the rebuilding and the uniting of the city and of the Jews and of the wall. But they're internal enemies. And then you've got this external enemy who's kind of got their own agenda going on, this Arab, right? And that's what the Bible says. We're not talking about racism here, okay? I want to be very clear. But his nation had a different interest in mind. If this city was rebuilt, if these people were unified, he was going to lose out on some things that benefited his nation and his people. So they align with this person, Geshem. Isn't that interesting? And I wonder if the attacks of the internal enemies was more painful for Nehemiah than the attacks of the external enemy. When there's an enemy that's outside the body of Christ, we expect it, right? They're not a believer. It's no big deal. Yeah, that's just where they're at. We bless them, Lord. We love them. But then you get to buy and sample it, and you're like, ooh, I wasn't expecting that. That's my brother. He's related to the high priest. <laughs> there were three phases, and I think this is really important for us to know. There were three phases and ways that... These enemies came against Nehemiah, and sometimes we talk about warfare so that we can understand and be alert to how the enemy would try to come against us, okay? And it helps us, because then when it comes, number one, we're not surprised. Number two, we're not taking it personally. And number three, we know how to stand in the midst of it, okay? And Nehemiah did this well, and we'll talk about this in a minute. So the first phase of attack was friendship. And I just read you that verse, okay, 6-1. It says, when the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and that not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message, come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Come, 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 let me buy you dinner. Let's go do something. I got to talk to you about this. What you're doing is amazing, right? And it looks like they're going to celebrate him. It says, but they were scheming to harm me. Mm -hmm -hmm. 
And when you get into a position like this and God calls you to go and build something, there will be times when someone calls you and invites you into something. And in your spirit, man or woman, you know something's off. I don't know what's going on here, but I know something ain't right. I got a call a couple weeks ago like that. I know something ain't right. And actually, Laura, check my phone because I think that individual texted me and thinks the meeting's today, but it's next week. Um, 333222. Make sure they know it's next week, not this week, please. And that happens, and they come and they try to get you to meet with them. So I sent this messengers with this reply to them. I am carrying on a great project, and I cannot come down. In other words, I'm so sorry. I'm just too busy. I can't meet with you. <laughs> and that's an okay response. That's an okay response. It's okay to say to people, you know what? To look at your circle of the things and the responsibilities that God has called you to do and say, this does not fit. It's a gracious offer. It's a kind offer. But something in me saying no, something's off, and it just doesn't fit for this season. So it's a no. I'm carrying on a, I'm so sorry. I'm just too busy. I just can't do that with you. I'm carrying on a great project and I just can't stop. I can't come down to go do this with you. And it's this idea of how the enemy comes in through friendship as a distraction to try to pull you into an agenda that they have that they want to bring about because they actually don't want you accomplishing the thing you're accomplishing. They're trying to leverage your influence and the prosperity that God has given you, the favor God has given you, the authority God has given you, the protection God has given you for their idea, for their own selfish ambition. And so often, we've seen this over and over and over again, okay, in my role with Kago, they really don't even do it intentionally or maliciously. They're wounded and or deceived most of the time. Not all of them, I'm going to be honest. But most of the time, they're wounded and deceived, and they really don't even know that's what they're doing. They sincerely are convinced that this is a good thing, and if we did this, the whole world would be changed. So we've got to get good at saying, no, I'm sorry. I'm carrying on a great project, and I cannot come down. And I have to laugh because Nehemiah goes on, and he says, <laughs> I have to laugh. I, th I thought of you, Laura. I thought of you. Why should the work stop? Why should the work stop? Why well, I leave and go down to you. Right? Like, so he doesn't just say, no, I'm sorry, I'm carrying on a great project and I can't come down. He's like, he, he looks at him and says, why should I stop and come down to you? Like, give me a good reason why. Tell me why we're actually meeting. You ever been an invitation like that where someone's not telling you something and you know something's going on, but they don't want to give you the information? You're like, tell me why. If you can't tell me why, guess what? I'm not coming. I'm not coming because I am carrying on a great project and I cannot be distracted, Right? It says four times they sent Nehemiah the same message. So with this false friendship, they're going to be relentless, and they'll come at you, and they'll come at you, and they'll come at you, and they'll come at you. And you just got to say, no, thank you, no, thank you, no, thank you, no, thank you, and no, thank you. No, I really meant no, thank you the first time I said no, thank you. Come on, right? So the second way that Nehemiah's enemies came at him was through the subtlety of his enemies slandering against him and fake news. So sometimes you'll be in a position of influence and people will come at you and they'll say, I have to tell you something about this person. I heard something that they're saying about you. Come on, y'all know what I'm, anybody that leads knows what I'm talking about. That's it. It's like the fake news, <laughs> okay, in the spirit. 
And they tried to manipulate. It says, in the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which it was written. It is reported among the nations. And Geshem says it's true. The Arab guy, the enemy of our nation, says it's true. Okay, thank you for letting me know that. That's an indicator that something's off about what you're about to tell me. That you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. And therefore, you are building a wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king. And have appointed prophets to make this proclamation. In other words, Nehemiah, you want to take over. This is really all about you and your ego. This isn't about the kingdom of God. This is about your kingdom. This is about building up your ego. This is about your agenda. I love Nehemiah's response. They go on in the letter and it says, and you have even, it says, they have said, you have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. You're telling people to prophesy and decree this thing. We've heard your podcast. There's a king in Judah. Now report this. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. In other words, we're going to go tell on you that this is your motive and this is what you're doing and this is what you're planning. And who do you think you are, Nehemiah, to unite the people? Who do you think you are to build this, to build that, to do this or to do that, to build up your gate in this portion of the wall? Who do you think you are? I'm going to go tell the king that you think you're all that and you're stirring stuff up. Right? Come on. I love this. It says, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your own head. I'm like, hmm. I got to say that to some people sometimes. I haven't used that one yet. I haven't been that direct. But I might have an opportunity in a week or two. Nothing like what you are saying is true. Nothing. You are literally just making it up in your head. And I love you enough to tell you that. End of conversation. He goes on and he says, they were all trying to frighten us thinking, if they tell us these things, if they tell Nehemiah these things, if they tell you these things, you're going to be too weak to do the work and it won't get completed. Their whole purpose is to bring a little bit of intimidation, a little bit of fear, to wear you out. Four times they sent the letter. That didn't work, so they switched gears. Okay, he doesn't want to be our friend. He can totally tell what's going on. So we're going to shift, and we're going to be a little more subtle. We're going to tell him this. We're going to tell the king he's doing bad stuff, and we want to pretend like we're his friend in a different way, and we're trying to help him. So we're going to tell him the gossips that out there, that is out there. And if he doesn't change, we're going to do something about it. Mm. Nehemiah ain't no dummy. You're making this all up. I'm not even going to go there with you. Please. That's them. Sha-da-da. Right? And I love this. This one, it tells us that it affected Nehemiah because it says, but I prayed. Okay? So he's got four letters. They come at him a fifth time, and he's like, Lord Jesus. Seriously? What part of no do you not understand? They come again the fifth time, and he says, but I prayed. 
Now strengthen my hands. Not tomorrow, Lord. Not next week. Not in 12 hours. Not in 30 minutes. Not in 30 seconds. Now, Lord, strengthen my hands. And you've ever been in a moment like that where someone's relentlessly coming at you and you need to respond and not react because we're still required to walk in love. Amen? And how we respond versus react in the moment can be the difference between life for someone or bitterness, offense or unity, victory or defeat. Amen? So he says, but I prayed. I was having a moment, but I prayed. Now strengthen my hands. And when the fake friendship didn't work and then the fake news didn't work, they shifted to pretending prophets to try to discourage Nehemiah. And he talks about it in Nehemiah 6, 10 through 14. It says, one day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Delaiah, and son of Mehetabel, who was shut at his home. He was shut in. He said, let us meet together in the house of God. He knew the lingo. Let us meet together in the house of God. Let's go worship. Let's go pray. Let's go hear from the Lord and prophesy. Inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. I've heard a word from the Lord and they're coming for you, so and so. They're coming for you. And I don't want you to die. I actually love you. I care about you. Come and hide away with me. We'll keep you safe. He says, by night they are coming to kill you. But again, Holy Spirit warned Nehemiah in verse 11, and he says, but I said, should a man like me, and I'll say, should a woman like me run away? Oh, no. If I perish, I perish, Esther said. If it's my time, it's my time. If this is the mountain I die on for the glory of God, so be it. But I will not compromise who it is God has called me to be, nor pretend like he didn't call me to do what he called me to do. Amen. And we have those moments where the enemy tries to come and say, this is the end of your career. This is the end of opportunity for you. And we have to make a decision like Ali was talking about earlier. Lord, I'll lay this down if you want me to. But if you want me to stand, I'll stand. We're literally in a building right now that looks like the Alamo. When, when the Lord told us to rent this, I looked at the building. I said, Lord, you've got to be kidding me. The Alamo. I said, what am I going to tell your people? He said, Stephanie, you tell my people, I bid you to come and die that you may live. And really, in this moment, Nehemiah mastered that idea that if I pick up my cross daily, if I live like I'm already dead, I can live surrender for him and he can always have his way through me. Amen? Should a man like me, should a woman like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? He said, I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him. That's Holy Spirit talking to him. I realized that God had not sent him. But that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He'd been hired to intimidate me. So that I would commit a sin by doing this, by running away from the very thing that he was commissioned by the Lord to do. And then they would give me a bad name and discredit me to the people. Sometimes if the enemy can't reel you into a distracting friendship or discourage you through the subtlety or intimidate you through the subtlety of your enemies through slander and fake news, 
He'll try to get you to commit a sin and cause you to be so discouraged that you retreat. You retreat. And then the ground isn't held and the land isn't pioneered and the wall isn't built on in your portion of the wall. And then the very ones that convinced you to retreat, the enemy that convinced you to retreat will then accuse you for retreating. They come at you. After I read this, I thought, I understand why it starts out so joyful in Psalm 126, and they're jubilant, and they're excited, and they're celebrating, and then all of a sudden it shifts, and it says, those who sow their tears as seeds will reap a harvest with joyful shouts of glee. We're human. We love to be accepted. We love to be in fellowship. We love to have close friends and to be understood. We, we were made for koinonia in the Greek. That means an intimate exchange between two individuals that produces life. So when that doesn't happen and people are constantly rallying against us, it can wear on us. It can grieve us. But that doesn't mean we should stop doing what it is God calls us to do. It means that we should trust him while we're going out, tears falling to the ground. Not tears of hopelessness, but tears of hope. And they become seeds of a future and of a destiny that God has told you about. And you plant them. You let them bring life and drench that land where he's called you to go. And it begins to shift. If you'll sow it as a seed. If you'll sow it as a seed, it says you'll reap a harvest with joyful shouts of glee. Come on. My friends tease me sometimes. They say, you want an impartation of joy? You need to go see Stephanie. I'm thinking, you want an impartation of joy? You just got to sow some tears (laughs) as seeds for a couple years. And then you're going to be so happy because God is good and he promises you'll reap a harvest of joyful shouts of glee. You just persevere and you don't stop doing what he told you to do because he's so good. And he always does what he says he'll do. And he always gets the victory. Amen? Yeah. I love this. So it goes on in Nehemiah 6.14. What did, what did Nehemiah do with the, I call them the posers, the opposers, okay? What did Nehemiah do with the posers? Okay, so back in the day in the 80s, for those of you that are young, a poser was a person who thought they could use a skateboard but didn't know how. <laughs> we called them posers. They'd come out and they'd pretend they couldn't do an ollie, they couldn't ride the rail, they couldn't do a lot of the tricks. We're like, man, you're a poser. All right? And these opposers in the spirit come out and they pretend like they're believers. They pretend like they're for you, but they're not. And they're actually coming against you and always trying to shift the agenda of the kingdom to their personal agenda, whether it's political or selfish ambition or work motivated or greed. You know, there's three things. It says there's lust of the eyes. I want what I see. Lust of the flesh. I want what makes me feel good. Or the pride of life. I want what makes me feel powerful. What builds me up. What makes me feel like I'm in control. I am God. We don't know what that was for, what the motives were for Tobias and Sambela. But in verse 14 of Nehemiah 6, this is what Nehemiah did, and this is so powerful. He said, Lord, remember Tobiah and Sanballat 
my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet, Nodiah, and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. Lord, I'm just asking you to remember. I don't know what to do about this. These are your children. Now, they were compromised, capitulating children, children living in mixture, but they were his children. I'm not going to touch your babies. They're not my, they're yours. But I am asking you, Daddy, would you please remember this moment? This is so beautiful what happens next. Nehemiah commits the opposers to the Lord. And the very next verse in Nehemiah 6.15 says, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elal in 52 days. Come on, somebody. You can't make that up. The moment he shifted his heart and he said, I am not their judge, Daddy. You're their judge. I commit them to you. And I'm asking you, Father, to remember and I submit myself in absolute surrender to you. And I say, I will take up my cross. I'll continue to sow these tears. I'll continue to do what you asked me to do. But I'm asking you, Daddy, will you remember them? Will you remember me? Will you remember what I did? Will you remember what they did? And you know what he did? He just kept the blinders on. You know those blinders they put on horses so they can't be distracted or startled left and right. He put the blinders on. And we call it sniper focus in the spirit, okay? Or target fixation. Okay, you can get target fixation. But your target fixation shouldn't be the end goal or the strategy. Your target fixation is God himself. And it says in Song of Solomon, I have given you dove's eyes. A dove's eyes can only look in one direction at a time. Target fixation. We fix our eyes on the finisher of our faith, Christ Jesus. And he brought these opposers back to him. And then it says, so. It doesn't just say that he committed them unto him. If you look at verse 14, he says, remember the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. In the original scripture, there's no dividing into verses. It was all written together. So it says those who are trying to intimidate me. And the very next word is, so the wall was completed. Come on. Sometimes we're going around the mountain because we haven't yet committed a few people to the Lord. We're still trying to fix it or redeem it or restore it or repair it. And the Lord's saying, I need you to be like, brush it off. Set them aside. You don't need to be distracted with this. You don't need to come down. It's okay to be honest and say, what you're saying isn't true. And just keep your eyes on me and keep moving forward. And just do the next thing I tell you to do after the next thing I tell you to do after the next thing I tell you to do. And the next thing you know, you're going to be standing there with a finished work in front of you. And you're going to say, well, this is done, Daddy. What's next? Come on. Isn't that good? He's so good. And we go back to Psalm 126, and it says, they may weep as they go out carrying their seed. Turn to your neighbor and say, you may weep. You may weep. There's a strong chance you're going to cry through this process. Carrying your seed to sow. It says, but they will return. Tell your neighbor, say, you will return. That's a promise. That's an imperative. You shall, in the old 
King James Version. You shall return with joyful laughter, with shouting and with gladness as you bring back armloads of blessing and harvest. A harvest overflowing. So much, in other words, you can't contain it. There's going to be so much you can't contain it. We're cracking up with this land. We get off the phone after making a cash offer in a place that we looked at a year and a half ago that they wanted $179,000 for. Daddy says, call an audible, Stephanie. Offer them 55. Sir, yes, sir. I call an offer 55. The guy says, eh, they won't take less than 100. Holy Spirit says, tell him, did you even ask him? I said, did you even ask him? He goes, uh, I just got off the phone with them. They'll take 85. Yeah, that's what I thought. I know what my daddy said. And we happen to have enough cash in the bank. That's God. Soon as we hang up from agreeing to that deal and signing the paperwork, the people where we were looking to build the land that daddy told us to go and pray over and decree and declare it was his, they said, would it help you if we gave you that land for free? We're like, eh, yes. We can't build on it today, but when God says we will, you can't make that stuff up. That's a harvest overflowing. We go from renting a facility, now we got two things to take care of. We're like, well, okay. Promotion means work. Amen. Tell your neighbor, say, promotion means work. Promotion means work. We, now we got some things we got to steward. We got some things we got to take care of. But this is the beauty. When the Lord sent Nehemiah out, he gave him the provision, the protection, the authority, and the favor he needed to do it. And he's going to give you the provision, the protection, the favor, and the authority that you need to do what he's calling you to do. Okay? Isn't that good? Yeah, he is. He's good all the time. I love this too, okay? God's good. He, he vindicates his children, okay? So all these opposers that are coming against you, all these circumstances, all these situations, all the naysayers, when God finally graces you to complete, you keep your eyes on him, and he finally brings you to the finish line where you've done exactly what he said he would do, he told you you would do, and, and it's finished. It says in Nehemiah 6.16, when all our enemies heard about all this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and they lost their self-confidence because they realized that the work had been done with the help of God. In other words, they looked at Nehemiah and the ragtag team and everyone building and hammering with a sword in one hand and a hammer in another, building in their neighborhood, doing their peace. It looked like nothing in the natural and they knew when it was finished, this had to be God. Come on. And sometimes we want the multi-million dollar building and the helicopter and the plane and the 8,000 members. But God's like, no, I want a ragtag team of misfits coming out the cave like David. You know why? Because I want all the glory. I want all the glory. I need them to know that they know that they know that this was me. I've been to that church. There's no way that wasn't God, right? Come on. They realized. And I think the principalities and the powers, they sit in that second heaven and they're watching us coming from faith to faith and glory to glory and into that place of surrender and obedience and they're losing their confidence. You want to know what's happening in our nation? The enemy is going down. And he's been going down since the time that Jesus died on the cross and was raised again and seated at the right hand of God. And it is finished. 
and he's going down swinging and all he's doing is he sees the end. He's losing his confidence and he's like, I can't wait anymore. I have to take the last hits I can take because I know I'm losing this ground. And we just decree and declare, yes, you are in Jesus' name. Yes, you are. The body of Christ is waking up. And they are coming forth in power and glory and in love. And this nation will never be the same. It'll never be the same. And he's scared and he has lost his confidence. Do you think they want to be this desperately out there? They don't. He don't. He don't want to show his cards. He has to. He has to. Because the time is now. The time he's being forced. The Lord is forcing him to show his hand. That's right, love. So this is good. Whenever God's shaking a nation, it's not a bad thing if the church will just be the church. It is messy and it is uncomfortable and it forces us to have difficult conversations. But if we will love and we will forgive and we will extend grace and we will, like Nehemiah, keep our eyes on the Lord and pray, strengthen my hands now, Lord. And keep moving forward, we will build something glorious. And all that shaking will do is just like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's just going to purify us. The only thing we're going to lose in that fire is those things that bound us, those things that blinded us, those things that kept us separate from our brothers and sisters and other nations, those things that did not please the heart of the Father. So trials and tribulations worketh patience. They're good for us. I used to be like, Lord, why are you telling me through James to rejoice? How am I going to rejoice? I'm not even rejoicing in the first place. <laughs> right? But when you start to learn that this is the cyclical pattern, this is the call, and that when we take up our cross and we lay it on our life, it comes with glory, it comes with honor, it comes with fruit, it comes with blessings, it comes with advancing the kingdom of God, it comes with manifestation of the righteousness, peace, and joy every way that you go, every way that you obey. I can't not do it anymore. And I can't apologize for doing it anymore. Because love always protects. Love always forgives. Always. Love always speaks the truth. When we really love people, we'll tell the truth. Amen. This is interesting. After all this, okay, the kind of the rest of the story here, they get the wall built. They get the foundation in place. It talks about Ezra reading the law. It says the older generation weeps. They're looking at it going, it's not what we thought it was going to be. <laughs> okay, we've all had moments like that where you're like, Lord, I didn't think it was going to go like this. And the young generation is all excited because they did what God told them to do. Right? The corporate body has a time of confession and repents of their inner marriage. This is very interesting. All but one of the opposers were Jewish. And it was their intermarriage that caused the conflict of interest in the agendas of the rebuilding. Isn't that interesting? It's so important why God says to be equally yoked. How can the two walk together unless they agree? And if you got tension and contention in your home behind closed doors, you're going to have a real hard time advancing the agendas of the kingdom of God. 
And not only that, but in this situation, it affected the entire nation because the individuals who were compromised out of relationship with the Jewish people were then positioned in places of influence to cause the problems because they were connected to the body. I mean, just Sila. Think about that for a minute. That blew my mind. I'd never seen that before. And I thought, oh, Lord, no wonder that's so important to you. Listen, girls, it's all right to be single, boys, ladies, men, gentlemen, until God brings the right one. And I just I heard not right, but righteous one. Until he brings the righteous one. And Cammie's doing the dab, yes, Lord. <laughs> Nehemiah's final reforms, and, and this struck me too. After all this, they get the temple built, they do all this repenting, they move forward, the wall is built, it looks like unity has been restored, they have the movement, and I can so attest. <laughs> oh, God has got such a good sense of humor. Everything Father God does is cyclical. Okay, if you look at the fruits of the Spirit, love, peace, joy, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, etc., I think I missed one, long-suffering, I think is in there. It depends on the version you're using. But it's cyclical. They build on each other, and you go around and around and around and become, go from one fruit to the next in increasing measure over and over and over again because God is eternal. So we're always going from faith to faith and glory to glory, right? We've taught on this before. And even in this rebuilding and reformation process that Nehemiah was going, and look what happens. It says his final reforms. If you read the rest of the book, chapters 7 and 8, the people are falling back into the same sins again. Nehemiah's final reforms are these. Distribution of supplies to the brothers working in the ministry. In other words, we need to not muzzle the ox that's treading out the green. We've got to pay our people so they can do the work. Right? We've been talking about philanthropy a lot in this city. Christian philanthropy. It's so important that we support the, the ministries in the city that are set on a foundation of Jesus Christ so they can accomplish the purposes of the kingdom and advance his kingdom and bring in the harvest. He had to warn them against working on the Sabbath. They got so excited about the ministry that they started treading wine on the Sabbath and working on the Sabbath because they saw the fruit, and then they got so excited they went beyond God's word and didn't rest and lean on him anymore and trust him in his timing. They're like, no, we got to hurry up. we got to do this. we got to hurry up. we got to do this. It's so good. we just got to keep moving. Let's not stop. It's like, no. Nehemiah warns them. Intermarriage returned again, and he had to warn them again against it. After they just repented and then were opposed by those three individuals who had intermarried that happened to lend their connections and their influence to these troublemakers, it caused them so much problems. And he has to tell them, be equally yoked. Don't intermarry. Don't marry people who have other idols or things that they worship besides me. If I'm not first... Wait for the next one. Then it says, he purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign. So he persevered with a team of leaders until they were pure. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about a heart leaning and looking and stayed and fixated on Jesus to the heart, the point where they say, whatever you say, not my will, but thy will be done. Like that'll always be their answer when confronted with something. That's really what purity looks like, right? 
We know that we're made pure by the finished work of Jesus Christ, that our spirit literally is made new, right? But there's a working out of our salvation into our soul, into our mind, into our will, to our emotions, into our actions, into our life, and that's a process. But if our heart is positioned and stayed on him in that place of, like Jesus was in Gethsemane, not my will, but thy will be done. And we can really receive from anyone if it's true We are. We're we're the pure-hearted ones that he talks about in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 and 6. And we shall see God. And then the final one was the restoration of the provision and first fruits. A restoration to the messianic model of the Hebrew calendar where he says, just give me your first. Give me your first. He chose the Hebrew people on purpose. We're grafted into them. They're not grafted into us. And he set up a model that makes sense. We talked about the first fruits a couple of months ago and how it's really, if you look at the first fruits and the tribes and the teachings that surround it, it's really God's discipleship model for the whole year. It points you to Jesus over and over and over and over again if you understand the mysteries. It's beautiful. And then finally, so all that does say this. The wall was completed, but there was, the people were still in pro- process. And sometimes we finish the immediate work and the immediate goal, and we get excited, but then we look at the people, and like Moses, we want to whack the rock. You know, we want to strike the rock. Lord, what is wrong with these people that you gave us, right? They don't get it yet. Yeah, they don't get it, and it's okay. That's why I'm sending you. That's why I'm sending you. You get it, sweetheart. You get it, son. You get it, daughter. That's why I'm sending you. When this harvest comes in, we're going to have a lot of people that don't get it, and we're going to start this process with them all over again, even though the wall of unity in the city is built. There will be others that are going to come in, and they're not going to know, and they're not going to understand, and it's our job to exemplify what it looks like, to equip the saints to do the work that God prepared in advance for them to do. Amen? So it's all that to say it's okay. It's okay. There's always a generation coming up that did not know Joseph. Amen? So it's about passing the torch. He understood that revival and restoration and reformation are as fragile as the generations that follow their that followed him, and that, are, that their willingness to wholeheartedly follow the Lord determined whether or not that restoration and reformation would continue or be destroyed. And you're a part of a particular generation, and in your generation, are you carrying the torch? Are you carrying the revelation that he wants you to carry, and who is he asking you to pass that torch on to? Who is he asking you to multiply that in the lives of? He recognized the reality that the small foxes is what spoils the vine. It's the little things. It's the little compromises, the little irritations, the little reactions, the little jabs, the the seemingly small opposers, distractions, discouragements, and divisions that try to come in that can actually ruin the vine. And I love these prayers. These are his final prayers, and I'm going to end with this, I think. Nehemiah's final prayers were these. In Nehemiah 13, 14, he said, Remember me for this, 
do not blot out what I have so faithfully done. And I can picture Nehemiah standing there looking at his life's work and thinking, Lord, you and I did this. I participate in the divine nature. I, I obeyed you and look at what you built, but do not forget me. Remember me for this, this obedience, this moment, this beautiful thing that you brought forth. And do not blot out what I have so faithfully done. In other words, don't let it die after I go. Let it continue to produce life. Let it continue to multiply. Then in Nehemiah 13, 22, he says, remember for this. Remember me for this and show mercy to me according to your great love. If I'm going to go to that one real quick. It's beautiful. Okay, 13, 22. And I'm reading out of the NIV version if you're looking that up. He says, I ordered the doors to be shut and not be open until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers and all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem because he wouldn't let them in. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. <laughs> and they learned a little something. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and to go guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. He said, remember me for this also. In other words, Lord, remember me for reminding your people to keep the Sabbath day holy, to rest and to trust you, to not try to do it in their own strength. Remember me for this according to your great love. Remember this. And then in 1328 and 29, it says, one of the sons of Joida, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. So in other words, the opposers kept coming in the next generation. This was the son of Sanballat. They kept coming. Just because we defeated it in our generation doesn't mean the enemy's not going to try it again in yours. You don't have no new tricks, guys. So if you stand with the generals and with the apostles and prophets and shepherds and teachers and you learn from them what they had to battle and you master what they learned to master, you're going to be just fine. You're going to be just fine. It says, and I drove him away from me. <laughs> And then he prayed and he said, remember them again. He commits them to the Lord again. The whole generation, the whole lineage of these opposers. Remember them again, oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood of the Levites. In other words, I'm not going to touch them, Lord. This is between you and them. But I'm asking you to remember them. I love the scripture because God tells us that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And then he says in Revelation, there's a day coming when he's going to cause some to come and bow before our feet and admit that we were Jews, that we were his, because they wouldn't admit it here on earth, and they just came against us, came against us, came against us. And then his final prayers in Nehemiah 13, 31, and it's so beautiful. After realizing, you know, they're still coming at us in this next generation he prays for himself again and he says, remember me with favor, O oh God. 
remember me with favor. And it's almost like in that moment, Nehemiah was looking over it all in the cycle of reformation and dealing with the reality that he didn't want his legacy to die when he transitioned. And he did not want the people to continue to sin, but they were. And he did not want the next generation to have to fight the same battles that he had to fight, but they were going to have to. And all this is stirring around in his mind and his heart. And he's just saying, Lord, just remember me with favor. Give me favor. Help me finish well. Help me pass the torch. Help me train them before I transition. Help me glorify your name. And that's our prayer today. Lord, remember us with favor. Remember your people in this nation. Remember us with favor. Whatever it is you're doing here, whatever transition you're bringing about, remember us with favor. Grace us to be faithful. Grace us to be gracious. Grace us to be intentional. Grace us to have the necessary conversations. Grace us to be compassionate. Remember us with favor. Send us with authority and with favor. Send us with provision. Send us with protection. But remember us with favor. I'm going to ask Donna and Holly to come up and do prayers. I'm going to let you rest because you have family today. Okay, Patty? Patty normally does this for us, so come on down front. Yeah, Lyra, come up here first. Yep, come on, baby. Holly, you just stay right here. Holly had a birthday this week. Thank you for listening today. Take a moment and ask Holy Spirit what he wants you to do with what you've learned. And remember, with God, all things are possible. So keep dreaming, keep praying, and simply obey. Because God is good, and he has good plans for you. You can subscribe to our blogs, learn about our speakers, and even hear from one of our team members how you can take part in transforming a city, your city with Christ. There's no time like the present. Visit ShekinahOnline.com. If this doesn't excite you, watch for our new and God-inspired product line, a newly released book by Stephanie Butler, more testimonies from our listeners like you, working to bring unity in cities across the world. If you feel led to support our podcast, you may do so on our Shekinah.com website. Or if you would like to support us monthly, there is a link labeled Listener Support on every podcast. Until next time, we thank you, we love you, have a blessed day.